We pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, when you don't get enough water, you confuse hunger and thirst. Then what happens? You eat when you don't need to. Well, what does that mean? You gain weight. When you don't get enough water, you get dizzy and anxious and tired. Your joints and your muscles ache. What does that mean? A bad life. So what's the point? We all need water. Lots and lots of water. We're in a series on the book of Exodus, and today, this week, we are in Exodus 17. So we're using, and we're going to use the classic newspaper reporter's questions, who, what, where, why, how, and when? Who, what, where, why, how, and when? What's the point? We all need water. Lots and lots of water. So who? Well, the Israelites. The Israelites lived in Egypt near the Nile River for 430 years. Each generation probably said something like this, eating leeks and onions by the Nile, oh, what breath, but dining out in style. Even when the Israelites left Egypt, they still had no problem with water. You needed to form walls, no problem. You needed to come crashing down on Pharaoh and his horses and chariots, easy as pie. Who? Well, the Israelites and Moses. If anyone deserves the title, the wonderful wizard of waterworks, it's Moses. Why, the name Moses itself means to draw out of water. As a child, he was placed into the water for safety and then drawn out for salvation. As a young man, Zephorah, who would soon be his wife, describes Moses in Exodus chapter 2, verse 17 with these words, rather loosely translated. When it comes to drawing water from a well, Moses is a lean, mean, aqua-hauling machine. And in Exodus 15, 25, when confronted with bitter water, Moses throws a piece of wood into the putrid pool, and presto, instant purified water. That's the who, Israel and the marvelous Moses. What? Well, Exodus 17, 1, there was no water for the people to drink. Israel left Egypt in chapter 17, and now they've been in the desert for about a month. They've seen nothing but rocks, sand, and dirt. Rocks, sand, and dirt? All of you know what it means to feel like to have no water. Do we ever? There's emotional thirst. It hurts so bad, sometimes I think I'm eating glass. There's spiritual thirst. God, if you're so good, why do I hurt so bad? God, why do you seem so far away? God, do you even exist? And then there's relational thirst. When it comes to love, I've struck out a billion times. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. What do we do when we're overcome with thirst? Well, just like the Israelites, we want to stone people. We resort to rocks. Do you remember the scene from Forrest Gump when Jenny begins throwing rocks at her old household home? When Jenny runs out of rocks and falls on the ground, what does Forrest Gump say? Well, sometimes there just aren't enough rocks. Well, I'm here to tell you tonight that Forrest Gump was wrong. Forrest Gump was dead wrong. We thirst so much for love that when we don't get it, we begin throwing rocks, verbal missiles, nuclear words, Silent stares, angry texts. There are always enough rocks, and it breaks God's heart. 
where? Well, they camped at Raphidim, Exodus 17.1. So where is Raphidim? No one knows. Scholars don't know. Archaeologists don't know. No one knows where Raphidim is or was. All we can say is that Raphidim was probably someplace near Sinai. But you know the exact location of Raphidim, and so do I. Raphidim is that place in our lives where we are burned out with fear too deep to imagine. Loneliness, too heavy to bear. And doubts, too many to number. Raphidim is that place in relationships are dehydrated, dry, and almost dead. Raphidim is where mothers are ready to throw in the towel. Where children don't have any friends to play with. Where husbands are working so many hours a week, they can't even see their family. Other spot, Raphidim on the job, where it's always the same old, same old, boring. Raphidim is in every church. It's a place where, try as we might, everything is as dry as dust. In Raphidim, we cry with Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. In Raphidim, we echo the anguish of Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And why? Why do we become so thirsty? Four words. It might have been. That's what the Israelites say in Exodus 17.3. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Translation, if we'd stayed in Egypt, it might have been better. It might have been. Those words were made famous in 1856 when John Greenleaf Whittier wrote a poem he called, poem he called Maud Mueller. It's a poem about a young woman by that name, and in it, one day she meets a young man. After their encounter, each of them ponders what it would be like to be married to the other. But the moment passes, and both Maud and the young man end up in sad marriages. Both anguish over what was lost that day so long ago. At the end of the poem, Whittier writes, of all sad words, of tongue and pen. The saddest are these. It might have been. So what do we got? We got who, what, where, why, how? How do we get water? How do we get water? Well, I guess we could get a staff. Wait, that's it. We could get a staff. But it can't be any ordinary run-of-the-mill Walmart kind of staff. It has to be the staff. Remember? Moses' staff. The staff that goes back and forth between a stake and a stick. The fact that struck the Nile and turned it to blood, the staff that stretched out over the Red Sea and divided it and let Israel cross on dry ground, that's the staff that we need. Take in your hand, God says, the staff and strike the rock, and water will come out for the people to drink. And Moses did, and water flowed, and the people drank. Paul reflects on this, and connects the rock to Christ. How so? Matthew 27, 29. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. 
They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. For Jesus, though, any old, ordinary, run-of-the-mill stick will do. Any stick that remotely looks anything like a king's scepter is just right. Any piece of wood that won't break if it's slapped repeatedly on someone's head. And make sure that piece of wood is carved at one to a point. A nice, sharp, pointed end. Because finally, finally the rock has to be split and opened up. John 19.34. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Water! Water flowing from the one whose lips were cracked and swollen. Water flowing from the one whose body was burned under the hot Palestinian sun. Gushing water from the parched mouth that cries, I thirst. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. And they did, and it flowed, and we live. Isaiah describes God's soul-quenching love with these words. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. Ezekiel sees that as a river teeming with life. Wherever the river flows, everything will live. And Joel writes, a fountain will flow out of the Lord's house. When? We're missing when. When does the water flow? When does it come to me? When does it quench my longing, aching heart? It's because Jesus loves you so very, very, very much that his living, life-giving, soul-renewing water flows from the cross to you. When? Right now. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting.